You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Toronto Centre's uh, third uh, segment of our Pandemics and Financial Stability webinar. And uh, I'm delighted that we have uh, so many uh, participants almost reaching uh, close to 400 from several countries. Just let me list a few that have more than a few people signed up. Australia, Brazil, uh, Dubai, uh, uh, Ecuador, uh, the list goes on, Mexico, Nigeria, uh, Zambia. All of you welcome and all of you that I didn't mention, welcome. Um, Today, the COVID-19 public health and economic crisis is ravaging Europe, uh, North America most severely, and it seems to be creeping up in developing countries. In today's episode, we sit down with two prominent experts to cover financial sector regulation and supervision dynamics. Their bios have been distributed to you. Bill Cohen is the immediate past Secretary General of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, where he was preoccupied with setting global banking standards. He also worked at the US Fed and the US Office of the Controller of Currency. So he's a supervisor supervisor. We're also fortunate to have Bill on Toronto Center's uh, Board of Directors. Tim Adams is the CEO of the Institute of International Finance or IIF, a global association of major financial institutions. He's also a firm, uh, former U.S. Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs, where he worked with the World Bank, IMF, uh, G7 coordination, mm -hmm. and other important matters. Finally, I would like to thank our key sponsors, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the IMF, the Jersey Overseas Aid, and Comic Relief, without whom we could not achieve our global mission. Before I start, uh, I know that many of our viewers have questions for these two experts, and we have allowed the time to deliver uh, answers to you. Please type your questions in the Q&A tab, which you will find below the video screen, and we will answer as many as our time allows. I'm very excited to start. So uh, this is a question to both of our uh, panelists, Bill and Tim. I'm sure you have both been involved in various crises, regional, international, especially the great financial crisis of 2008. This one seems a little bit, well, a lot different, both in terms of magnitude and in any dimension that one can think of. So let's start with you, Tim. What's different this time? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on this morning. It's a pleasure being with you. And it's a real honor being on with, with Bill Cohen, who's one of the great public servants uh, and has been just wonderful to work with. We haven't always agreed on everything, but I tell you, always had the public's interest uh, at, at heart. So it's an honor to be here and be with him to, today. You know, it, there are similarities to enormous uncertainty, chaos, the fog of war was often described, market plumbing, under stress, uh, headline grabbing uh, stories. But what's different is just the nature of how this transpired. This is a health crisis that became an economic crisis. 
it became a financial crisis with a feedback loop into the uh, economic uh, activity. And then layered on top of that, there is a dispute among oil producers, which has seen oil prices crash to lows we haven't seen for 20 years, which is having implications for high yield debt, which also feeds back into the, the financial system. So different from what we saw in 0809, which was a, a, a housing finance crisis that led to a banking crisis or a sovereign debt crisis that led to a banking crisis. So it's different and we need to think of it differently. Uh, we need to learn the lessons from previous crises, not only 08 and 09, but before that, and take the best lessons we've learned, but also understand that we need to think creatively and aggressively in, in this environment as well. Thank you. And Bill, you bring a different perspective into it. You were in the trenches uh, in help setting up the global standards. What's different this time for you? Um, Babak, first of all, thank you uh, very much for organizing this. This is a tremendous series, uh, and I, I hope this webinar turns out to be uh, as good as the first two. So congratulations to you, your colleagues at the Toronto Center. Uh, let me also uh, echo, let, let me say uh, likewise what Tim had to say. I, I completely agree, Tim. There were many times we didn't agree, but... Uh, <laughs> But we always, um, the, uh, Tim and his staff, the IF, made a tremendous contribution to uh, global standard setting. And uh, it was a pleasure to work for them, with them. Uh, thank, thank, you. thank you for that, Tim. Um, yeah, there is, uh, you know, Babak, tremendous similarities. Um, the last crisis, the 2007, 2008 crisis, the same uncertainty, the same sense of fear, concern, uh, capital market, uh, dysfunction, uh, the volatility. So a lot of that is, uh, a lot of what we're seeing today really is reminiscent of what we were going through a little more than a decade ago. Um, to be sure though, there are some tremendous dissimilarities. Um, I, I think the first thing that strikes me, better preparedness, uh, the financial system is much better prepared. This time there's, there's actually a playbook. A playbook actually exists, whereas um, for the previous crisis, that really wasn't the case. You know, trying to, you know, the central banks, particularly the Fed, really making up a lot of these programs, facilities, as they went along. Uh, in many cases, they've dusted off the playbook, they've added to it. So I think that that's, that's a very big difference. You've got some seasoned hands uh, at the central banks and the supervisory authorities who've been through this before. It makes a tremendous difference. Um, now, I, I think... Uh, Everyone would agree there's more capital uh, in banks and banking systems. Uh, liquidity situation is better. Um, but it's, it, just, it doesn't stop with um, better capital and better liquidity. There's, uh, you know, there's far greater consideration to stress testing, um, business continuity. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the other big differences though, um, Geography, you know, we've, this, this truly is a global crisis, whereas the last one, uh, it originated in North America, it spread to Western Europe, uh, it had knock-on effects to the rest of the world, but here we've got something that truly is global, um, and it's moving very, very quickly. Um, I think of the operational risk, you know, here, Tim's at home, I'm at home. Um, I would assume most people in, uh, on this call this morning or today um, are similarly at home. What are the operational risks associated with that? Uh, we've had lockdowns of entire countries and regions 
what, what would be the impact um, of that? The scope of the crisis, tremendously broader than the last time. Um, last time it started in the financial sector. This time, um, you know, we've got a contagion that's affecting virtually every sector um, of the economy. And finally, um, the other thing I'd like to point to, public finances. How well equipped will countries be to, uh, to provide rescue packages? Um, just how strained are public finances in some countries that would preclude them or prohibit them from doing so? So yeah, a lot of similarities, Babak, but quite a, uh, quite a number of differences as well. Yeah, and thanks may, to may you. I, yeah, may sorry, I follow please. up on that? Please, sure. go ahead. I, 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 think, I think Bill raises a great point. And the, the global nature of this crisis, we're starting to feel lots of phone calls about sovereign debt crises in developing countries, IDA recipient countries, uh, the question about uh, keeping credit lines open, the, the questions about restructuring debt, the questions about uh, where there are sovereign creditors. I think that's really the next wave in this crisis is how will the developing world, which do, many of those countries do not have the health infrastructure we have in the Western countries or in Japan, how will these countries face not only the human crisis, the human calamity, but also the fiscal and financial and economic crisis? They don't have the tools, they don't have the capacity, and we in the multilateral sphere are gonna to have to be very creative in the way in which we think about providing them assistance but also keeping credit flows flowing, remittance flows flowing, and ensuring that this liquidity crisis doesn't become, and health crisis doesn't become an insolvency crisis for the developing countries. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks for both of you. And Bill, thank you to you and all your colleagues at the Basel Committee for your hard work back then. But as you said, the dimensions are so different as both of you alluded to this. And this is a classic case of unknown unknowns, right? And we're all facing with that. And I know that a lot of organizations had developed uh, prior to this, their business continuity plans. And one common theme that we've heard from various supervisors uh, before, maybe during this uh, Q&A look here as well, is the need to update business continuity plans. And uh, Diana, would you please put up that uh, notice if you can? And that is something that we have been uh, working very hard to try to uh, 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 prepare the community. So as you can see, uh, there is a community of practice that Toronto Center has established for supervisory community to work on BCPs updating them. The first one's gonna be uh, uh, taking place on April 8th. Space is limited, but I encourage our supervisory colleagues to please register uh, for this session as it's very relevant. And also if you need more information, please contact Toronto Center through the following website, crisis at torontocenter.org. And the center is the Canadian English spelling of center, R-E at the end. Thank you very much, Diana. Bob, uh, uh, let, let me quickly add, this, this is a, I think a tremendous service to the supervisory community, uh, initiatives like that. I, I commend you. Uh, and your staff are having the foresight of, of being able to um, put something together like that uh, in so short of a amount of a time. So um, kudos to yeah. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So um, Bill, the next question is for you. Uh, you led the Basel Committee and very heavily involved in regulatory responses to the 2008 global uh, financial crisis. It wasn't an easy task. With the COVID-19 pandemic continuing to cause significant pressures and volatility in the markets. 
can we say financial institutions are in a much stronger position today resulting from Basel standards that were introduced in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis? Um, I, Barbak, I think yes, without a doubt, banks have entered this crisis in a much stronger position, but it's not, uh, not just in terms of capital uh, and liquidity. And, and to be sure, uh, the quantity and uh, the quality of capital is better. The risk coverage of the global regulatory framework um, is broader. Uh, banks operate with less, uh, less leverage now. Uh, we also have global liquidity standards, something we didn't have uh, heading into the last crisis. But the advances, um, it's been more than just Basel III related. We, we've got better stress testing, both on the official sector, every, virtually every jurisdiction I work with, uh, at least every jurisdiction that's a member of the Basel Committee has some sort of uh, stress testing regime in place. Banks also uh, have done a, uh, a much better job at stress testing. We've got margin requirements for non-centrally cleared derivatives a revised large exposure regime. We've got BCBS 239, risk data aggregation, risk reporting. Um, better governance, we've got uh, an expected, expected credit loss um, accounting standard in place, both uh, IFRS 9 and uh, in the US, the current expected credit loss framework, CECL. Um, so I, 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 yeah, I, I think we are much, much better placed to uh, uh, to battle the fallout from this pandemic. Now, am I saying capital liquidity are perfect? No, that will never be the case. I'm a, I'm a former supervisor, regulator. I, uh, I'll never be happy. Um, but we are um, in a much better place. We're still uh, around the world implementing uh, important elements of Basel III, particularly the 72.5% output floor. Um, I think there's still quite a bit of improvement needed um, IT and risk reporting, there have been some advances, but again, uh, there's still, as always, Babak, uh, there's more to be done. Thank you. And um, Tim, over to you. So I guess one of the virtues of this crisis, if one can use that word, uh, is that uh, banks are not the culprits this time, right? They got beat up pretty heavily in 2008, and a lot of things had to change. Uh, so moving to your question, last week, your organization published two important documents, global prudential regulatory responses and global policy responses. These are very useful initiatives and reflect the overall concern that there may not be global coordination of different policy measures around the world. So that's actually an important point and is very unfortunate that this crisis broke as some world leaders were so busy over the last couple of years to dismantle the entire global uh, trade uh, architecture and all that mm -hmm. and everything else that I know as a former international uh, affairs person at the US Treasury. I'm sure you have some views on that as well. But moving to your question, what is the financial services industry's overall reaction to those policy measures and to the prudential regulatory responses in particular? Yeah, a great question. You know, it, it, it is an international, it is a global problem. It requires a global response. I'm reminded of the Pittsburgh summit in 2009. It says there in the statement, when we were uh, elevating the FSB uh, and the G20 to the heads of state, where he said, this is a global problem. It requires a global solution. It was true then, it is true now. And so I'm heartened by the fact that the G20, the G7, and other the Basel Committee, the FSB are all actively participating now 
Uh, I've been on the phone the last few days with Augustine Carstens at the BIS. Every head of every multilateral or international standard setting body is incredibly engaged, and I applaud that uh, as we would expect them to be because they're all professionals and they're all seasoned veterans. And, and I applaud what we've seen out of the key central banks, Jay at the Fed or Christine at the ECB or Andrew Bailey at the, the Bank of England, Kurodasan at the Bank of Japan. It is truly historic, with, whether it's interest rate cuts or QE or new credit facilities for commercial paper or mortgage-backed securities or uh, setting up new special vehicles for uh, corporate bonds, either off the run or on the secondary market. It's been historic and, and we should applaud them. And, uh, you know, many times I think they probably push the envelope, but that's great. Uh, they're not going to sit around and wait for others to act. And then finally, the fiscal authorities, uh, while a little slow, uh, have uh, come to fruition. We now have three packages in the United States. I think there is uh, potentially a fourth and maybe even a fifth package in the pipeline. So officials are coming to, uh, to the rescue, but it's been slow, a little cumbersome on the fiscal side, but the monetary authorities and supervisors and regulators should be absolutely applauded. Uh, if there were a Nobel Prize for uh, these kinds of activities in central banking uh, or leading uh, international standard setting bodies, they should receive it and receive it quickly. I wish there was that kind of a coordination when it comes to, when it came to the public health part of this uh, crisis. And thank you for that response. So Bill, moving over to you, um, the current situation may be a classic instance of where macroprudential capital buffers uh, should be removed to free up capacity to preserve the flow of credit um, so that businesses can function and move on. In fact, we see that from various countries around the world, various regulatory authorities are removing some of these buffers or, or reducing them. But how do micro level supervisors view this? Do they agree with lower capital requirements at a time of declining asset quality and higher levels of non-performing loans? Are we setting ourselves up for a bigger problem down the line? Yeah, Babak, the, the point you're making relates to conflicting mandates. You've got a uh, you know, typical example, you've got a macroprudential body like the central bank um, has one view of the crisis. You've got um, other authorities in the same country, uh, supervisory authorities, say, without a macroprudential mandate, uh, and they've got their own set of responsibilities. This has got to be made abundantly clear, crystal clear by senior staff of the organizations, of the, the authorities uh, in every country. This is not the time for turf wars, uh, not, not the time for a narrow view of individual mandates. Uh, word has to be passed from all levels of the uh, organization, starting at the top, uh, that we are in crisis mode. Uh, this, is, this is about, you know, we're talking uh, country, national, jurisdictional, uh, global financial stability. It's a, you know, I, I hate to be too dramatic about it, but, but you know, we are in um, an existential moment in some respects. It's not the time for micro individual mandates. Um, I, I've been quite vocal um, about the importance of implementing the global reforms in a full, timely, and consistent basis. But, but that always presumes we are in quote unquote normal times. These aren't normal times. Um, and the standards, were, standards we, we produced in Basel, um, they're based on the presumption of a steady state. This isn't a steady state. Um, on the question of buffers though, Babak, we, uh, 
I, th I think everyone in the Basel Committee always thought that, you know, from an academic or a theoretical perspective, it makes abundant sense, right? You build up capital in good times and allow banks to draw that down, draw down the buffers uh, in less good times so that they can continue to lend to the real economy uh, just at the time when uh, credit is most needed. And up until now, um, we haven't had an opportunity to test it. Well, <laughs> we're gonna see how, um, uh, how it's gonna work out. And I think it's been, I think the central banks and the authorities around the world have made uh, an excellent start with um, you know, this, this, this communication, which is so important. You know, the Basel Committee last October published something just, just to confirm that the buffers in the capital framework, they're there to be used. So it's, it's, it's about the usability of the buffers. And I think that was, um, I wouldn't say it was prescient on the point of the Basel Committee. I, I don't think anyone knew um, back in October that we would have this, you know, a, a global pandemic, but um, nevertheless, the statement was made. And I think that it's, it was a great, uh, a great um, statement to be made to, again, confirm the usability of the buffers. Um, I think the statements coming from, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, the Fed, the Bank of England, the ECB, um, that emphasize that point, the buffers are there to be used. Uh, I think that's, that's really important. Uh, other jurisdictions, I know the, the Swiss um, said they're studying it. So just, um, just the, the, the fact that um, all the authorities, central banks and supervisory authorities are aware of the buffers and they are making the point that uh, the buffers are there to be used. I, I think that's, uh, that's really important. So I think uh, uh, on that front, Babak, I think we're off to a, a, a really encouraging start when it comes to using the buffers. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess you're underscoring that these are firefighting times. These are not times for being Puritans about standards that were set up at a different time for different needs. Uh, Tim, I'm going to ask you the last question because I'm very uh, anxious to get to their audience questions now. And uh, this is also a subject that I think was covered at the Financial Times uh, in our earlier conversation that you brought up. Uh, in the years leading up to the 2008 uh, financial crisis, big banks were among uh, corporate America's most generous dividend payers. And they, indeed, Citigroup, which received the biggest bailouts among the large banks, did not even halt dividend payouts until it was forced to do so by the government in November 2008. Do you think all banks should refrain from discretionary capital distributions like bonuses, dividends, and buybacks until there is a clear sense that the jurisdiction's financial system is stable? Uh, it's a great question and a topical one, just given the headlines. Uh, let me just step back for a second and then I'll, then I'll answer the question more directly. And that is, you know, there are 20,000 banks globally. They all have different capital structures and investment profiles. And most pension funds invest in banks. They do so because they're considered uh, on a risk-adjusted basis fairly safe. And most of the banks pay a nice dividend. So if you're the, the Teachers Fund of Texas or the Fireman's Fund of Chicago, you, your pension fund invests in banks in Citigroup or JP Morgan because you like the nice dividend. So giving up that dividend means that pension funds will not be receiving the income they normally receive. And the numbers out for Europe this morning, if you look at div if dividends are ceased across the board of all firms in Europe, that means European pension funds are gonna be starved of close to 300 billion euros in income this year. So what may be a banking crisis could become a pension crisis given the pensions have their own 
challenges in generating sufficient returns given their payout structure. But uh, look, I, in, in, a, in a perfect world, I'd say it's up to each individual institution to make that judgment. Some institutions like Santander and Spain uh, voluntarily gave up uh, dividends. US uh, banks voluntarily gave up uh, buybacks. But what we are seeing is public authorities coming together and asking for financial institutions to refrain from distributing capital back to their, their owners and their shareholders. We saw it in Europe in the last couple of days in the UK overnight. The downside of that is that uh, bank stocks are really being hammered. I just saw this morning HSBC, Standard Chartered, down about 12%. Uh, European continental banks uh, uh, equally so over the last couple of days. And that makes it very difficult to raise capital. It makes it very difficult to, to, uh, to raise capital in the future. And the basics of banking or any business is you've got to earn your cost of capital and you've got to be profitable. If you don't have profitability, you're not earning your cost of capital, then uh, you're, you're not an ongoing business. And, and that in itself is a financial stability problem. And so the question is, uh, is this a short-term phenomenon? And I think it does make sense uh, throughout this year. I think it makes sense that uh, we retain as much capital on the balance sheet as possible so that we can continue to provide uh, credit to the economy. And I, and I think if you were to survey every C-suite of the institutions, or certainly the GSIBs, they would say absolutely. But I uh, just want to make sure that this isn't a permanent status that ultimately undermines the capital structure of the institutions, their capacity to raise capital, the capital they're going to need if they're going to be Basel III compliant over the, the timeline of Basel III implementation, and just the ability to, to have a capital structure that makes them an ongoing business. If you look at the price to book ratio for the GSIBs, uh, I think JP Morgan's the only firm that has a price to book above one, which the market is saying that uh, they'd be better off uh, dismantled than they are as a, a, given the enterprise value of the firm. That's not sustainable. And so we need to think about the structure of our industry in various jurisdictions. But the key is you've got to be profitable. You've got to earn your cost of capital. You've got to return uh, capital to shareholders, especially those shareholders who've invested in your stock because they think they're going to get a dividend. So I'm all for it in the short term. I think we'll see more of it over the coming days. Uh, but I think once we get to normalcy, whatever that means, uh, we have to return to the kind of capital structure and payout structure that has been typical of these kinds of institutions so they can compete for investors and capital from uh, other industries and other firms. Yeah, what's thank you. What's interesting about the answers that each of you gave to the questions, the last questions, was you both kind of uh, held your breath but said this measure is okay for this time period. So I'll take that as a constructive feedback, but it does underscore the time period we're in. So now we're on to the audience questions, which I'm very excited to start reading to you. Uh, I guess the first one I'm going to give to you, Bill, um, from a financial stability um, perspective, what are the main and most important aspects to take into consideration in order of priority emanating from COVID-19? So if you were back at Basel again, and this was hitting your desk, what are some of the, how would you prioritize some of these issues? Um, from a standard setting perspective, Babak, and, and you, you alluded to it just a moment ago, um, it doesn't matter if we're talking about banking standards, global standards for banking or securities or insurance or accounting for that matter. Um, you, you don't set standards, you don't develop standards um, in a crisis, in, in the fog of war. It, it's, it's, uh, and I, I mentioned this earlier, 
they're developed during uh, quote unquote normal times. That's the presumption that uh, the standards would be in place um, in, in a steady state. So um, st setting standards at this point, where we are today, that's, that it's almost irrelevant. What really is important from a financial stability perspective, um, um, liquidity in the capital markets, um, um, smooth functioning of the capital markets, and that's where really the, the province of the, um, the central banks. Uh, I think the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England have done a magnificent job. Uh, it's striking to, uh, and I, again, I, not to repeat myself, but the, the similarities between today uh, and where we were in 2007, 2008. Um, and it's, it's all hands on deck. Let's, let's right the ship. Let's make sure uh, we've got a, a, a sense of stability as far as the capital markets are concerned, as far as the flow of funds are concerned. And, and I think the massive injections uh, and the liquidity facilities provided by central banks have done exactly that. So we've got a, we've got a, and, and that, you know, the benefit of that is in addition to um, keeping flow of funds moving, it, it creates a, a sense of confidence. You've got uh, some seasoned hands um, at the controls, people who, um, who know what to do and they're doing it. So uh, again, I, I think this, this creates a bit of, it, it instills confidence uh, among mar market tar participants and that's uh, really, in terms of priority, that's, uh, I think, priority number one. Okay, thank you. And this question, I think, uh, Tim, I want to give you a bit of a heads up. I think we have an egalitarian in our midst, someone from the Main Street, <laughs> not so much the Wall Street. And this individual invokes the word billionaire. So I don't know if they're from the U.S. or some other country, but maybe a Bernie supporter, although I don't know. But let's give it a shot. <laughs> Uh, don't you think that now is the right time to ask billionaires to show solidarity and to share their wealth with the poor population? It is okay to ask from governments to use their sovereign rights to issue debt and support economies and businesses. But now is the moment to show different kind of solidarity. So we can take it as a comment, but it might be interesting for you to also uh, give it some bit of a thought on this. Sure. Well, uh, I, I don't know that they're not uh, sharing their wealth or keeping businesses open. And, um, you know, if, unfortunately, the, the discussion about uh, billionaires, and I don't know what the difference between someone who's a billion versus 900 million, it becomes an artificial distinction, is that we're often missed the point that some of the many of those, if you look at the top 400 richest people in the United States, many of them are self-made uh, 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 individuals. They came from nothing. They built businesses or they are creative artists, someone like Steven Spielberg, uh, who created a massive business, or Jay-Z, or Oprah. You know, we wanna, make, we wanna make this about financial sector and we think of bankers, but really, if you look at who composes the wealthiest people uh, in the United States, for example, they tend to be industrialists, they tend to be entrepreneurs, they tend to be a lot of technologists, and they tend to be people in the creative arts. And as far as I can tell, they're all engaged in running their businesses. Jeff Bezos is certainly out there every day trying to ensure that Amazon is running and Amazon is now an important part of the sustainability of our US economy. Uh, he's vowed to, to hire 100,000 people and to ensure a safe uh, uh, environment for his workers. And so he's doing what he should be doing. And that is to keep uh, his businesses going, keeping uh, employment and keeping the wheels of the economy turning. 
you know, how much taxes they pay, I don't know. I know, I do know the numbers uh, uh, in an aggregate fashion, and that is the top 5% of income earners pay half of all federal income taxes. And I think the top 10% pay, pay about 80%. So we do have a fiscal structure in the United States where a small percentage of the population ends up paying for the, almost the entirety of the federal government. Uh, and you might ask, what should the top 10% pay? If it's not 80%, should it be 85 or 90? I don't know. That's a conversation we'll have in this political cycle. And really, it's up to the voters to decide what kind of uh, fiscal trajectory they want in the future. I will say this. We're going to run huge deficits. We've been running deficits for years, uh, trillion-dollar deficits pre-crisis. We're going to run multi-trillion-dollar deficits going forward, which are going to be you know, uh, 10%, 12% of GDP. That is sustainable in the short term because interest rates are low because of the nature of this crisis. They are not sustainable over the long haul, and my children and my grandchildren someday are going to have to pay it back. So at some point, we're going to have to think about a more sober and sustainable fiscal structure. That is not the issue today, uh, but it will be in the medium to long term. Thank you. I'm sure it's a question that's probably on a lot of people's minds, and um, um, I think uh, thank you for giving that perspective. Uh, Bill, this question goes to you. It's not necessarily the fairest questions because it's, it covers insurance. And I know you're a banking expert, but nonetheless, you have been operating in uh, various capacities in different sectors. So let's give it a shot. Given the interest rate cuts, market volatility, adverse mortality experience with mm. COVID-19, huge oper operational risks with the current situation. So that's the context. How do we see the financial institutions, in particular insurance companies, remain solvent? Whether any stress tests conducted to examine the impact across countries and any possible solutions that are being examined. Do you have any view on this point? I mean, the, uh, the list of challenges uh, confronting insurance firms um, that, that you just uh, you know, articulated, um, yeah, there's some... some Tremendous challenges, and uh, even before all this started, I, I thought the the challenges that banks face: um, low interest rates, um, competition from fintech, um, very competitive local markets in some jurisdictions, lingering asset quality problems, um, still trying to to um, uh, get up to Basel III standards. Um, uh, efficiencies or, or lack of efficiencies. Um, so, I mean, the, the list is, the list is, uh, is quite long, Babak, um, and, and that is for banks and for insurance firms. Um, I think the one thing you could, you could say that, uh, and again, it's the point I made earlier, um, when you've got a crisis, and we are in a crisis, um, all bets are off. Um, Standards or the rules and regulations might be temporarily suspended. I, I hate to use the word forbearance. Flexibility is a better word in, in my view. Um, um, as long as those, as long as those changes are not made permanent, as long as they're not extended. Um, what's the expression? The uh, the most permanent thing. Is, is when somebody says it's only a temporary situation. That, so it's very dangerous when you, when you go down that road, um, it's, it's hard to go back to making uh, uh, something that was meant to be temporary. It's, it's hard to make it truly temporary. So that, I, think that's, I think that's a risk. 
Now, as, as far as the solvency of insurance firms, um, the jurisdictions I've worked with, my, my, uh, my, my contact with colleagues at the IAIS in Basel, um, you know, this is an important supervisory question. How well did insurance firms uh, stress test a scenario like this? Um, I, I know after the last crisis, we would sit around, we would think, okay, well, where's the, the next crisis coming from? And it's usually, a never, it's never a single factor. It's typically, uh, you know, convergence of, of several factors at the same time, a perfect storm, so to speak. Um, I know when we were in Basel thinking about the next crisis, I, I'm sure I never said, and I'm sure no one I was working with said, well, it's going to be a pandemic and it's going to be coupled with a collapse in uh, oil prices. Um, but you don't plan for specific events. You plan for the fallout. Um, so it's, it, so I, you know, I think it's an important supervisory question to the extent that banks and insurance firms did stress test the impact of something, not necessarily the, the precise trigger and the contributing factors that led to that uh, fallout. Um, I, I think that's gonna, you know, we'll see in the coming months uh, just how well they did stress test and, and how well they did plan. Well put. Um, I'm gonna uh, take this next one for, sorry, send this next one to you, uh, Tim. Uh, the questioner asks, the problem with systemic liquidity is that in times of crisis, it stays with the financial intermediaries and does not move to the real sector, real economy because of credit rationing and risk aversion. I mean, that's the rationale they're providing. Would it be appropriate for central banks around the world to emulate the U.S. Fed and take on corporate debt on their balance sheets? Uh, well, I, I think you raise a, a, one of the most important and fundamental issues in a crisis is liquidity, uh, because liquidity crises ultimately become solvency crises. And if you can't provide liquidity, then you've got the challenge. And uh, it's important for financial institutions to keep credit lines open to keep. But but you know there's a there's a prisoner's dilemma or a, a collective action problem. Every single firm would like to close their credit lines, but want to make sure all their competitor firms keep their credit lines open so that they can benefit. That's where you need uh, a, a public policy solution. That's where you need incentives and uh, efforts to ensure that financial, financial intermediaries of all types, not just banks, but all in intermediaries, keep liquidity flowing, credit lines open. And I think the, best, the biggest banks do try to do that for their best clients because they try to see through the cycle. Now, you know, one of the interesting discussions I had after the last crisis is how many CEOs and chairman of the major institutions said, you know, uh, if we're banking, if we're HSBC and we're banking Siemens, I'm just making that up, then, you know, we've, we've been banking them for 50 years. We're going to bank them for another 50 years. We're not going to let a small crisis get in the way of a, an important business relationship. So I think in many instances, they do try to keep credit lines going and liquidity uh, flowing. But when that does break down, when it's not possible, then in most certainly there's a public uh, policy and a public sector role. We saw it with the Fed. And I would say that it's a, where those jurisdictions that have the legal authority to do so, they should. It should be a short-term measure. It's a, it, it should not be a permanent uh, situation. It should not be uh, where we turn uh, institutions or re recipient uh, companies into state-owned enterprises. Uh, it is a temporary nature, but most certainly you've got to ensure there's sufficient liquidity in the system so that liquidity crisis doesn't become a solvency crisis. 
Uh, but can I can I weigh in on that uh, as well? Sure. Um, I think the question, I think it's a, it's a very fair question and it's, it's an observation that was made uh, from the last crisis. Um, central banks providing massive amounts of liquidity only for the banks, not all banks, but you know, for many, many banks just to hold on uh, to that liquidity. Um, and this isn't a plug for, Bob, for Basel III, um, but, but again, going back to what I said before, banks, Big banks especially have entered this crisis with uh, tremendously different uh, liquidity profiles, both um, you know, to su survive a 30-day stress uh, period, that's the uh, liquidity coverage ratio, the LCR, and, and they're better structured long-term, that's the net stable funding ratio. And I, I really do think um, that banks, yeah, I, I would never say this time is different, it's very dangerous, I'm not saying this time is different, but um, in many respects, um, the profiles of banks as they came into this crisis, liquidity profiles um, are far, far improved, far different. So hopefully the observation that was made from the last crisis won't be made uh, this time around. I, I really do think uh, banks are, are better equipped uh, to handle their liquidity pressures than they were last time. Thank you. Just uh, picking up on this time is different. Uh, so Bill, one of our uh, board dinner speakers in the past was Carmen Reinhardt, uh, one of the authors of This Time is Different. In fact, I believe she's written an article, which I'm, I'm waiting to read. It's called This Time is Very Different. So I'd like to find out what she's saying in that context, right? So this other question is uh, uh, an interesting one. And all of us, I think, can relate to aspects of it. I think we're all uh, nostalgic about time of normalcy when handshakes were in, in in vogue when we could st stand shoulder to shoulder, take pictures. This questioner is taking a different tack. And it's, it's uh, this one's for you, Bill. Is there anything that regulators and supervisors can do to ensure the eventual recovery from this current, uh, this current crisis is sustainable and inclusive? So emphasis on inclusive. How to help make the post-crisis financial system more green and more inclusive than the pre-crisis one? So in a sense, how do we make sure that we don't lose all the gains we made uh, with respect to climate risk and everything else that we were talking about? I guess that's how I'm interpreting this question, but uh, over to you. Yeah, no, um, I, I like that question because it, it's so easy to get, get caught up um, in, in fighting the fires that we're seeing today and making sure that banks are gonna be able to continue to, to, uh, to lend to the real economy. This, this is a really an excellent question because it's looking a little bit beyond and, and, and it's, it's easy to lose sight of the, uh, the bigger picture. Um, financial inclusion, green finance, really important questions, but complicated questions. Um, on green finance, I mean, there's certainly uh, at a minimum from a disclosure perspective, and, and, and I think the official sector has done the right thing there. I think that's um, kind of the road we've started to go down um, from, a, from a regulatory perspective to have common disclosure. Um, I think that's a good start. I think that's something um, when it comes to green finance, this, this is a, a really important question for the boardroom. Um, what's the bank's strategy when it comes to green finance? Uh, are we going to stay in so-called brown finance? And if so, um, how are we going to price those kinds of exposures? Um, so there's, there's a, an important risk management and governance question here. 
Um, from a regulatory perspective, Babak, um, I, I've made this, I've been quite public about saying, um, I, I think this is more, you know, if, if there's a, a socially desirable initiative like green finance, terribly important. I've got, I've got three teenage daughters. Um, I want the world to be a better place when, when they're adults and they've got families of their own. Um, but when you've got a socially desirable initiative like green finance, I think there's an important role for, for government to, uh, to play, not necessarily uh, through regulation, um, perhaps through direct subsidies. I think that's the most effective, the most efficient way to promote a socially desirable initiative. I'm not so sure bank regulation is the way to do it. Um, I think there are risk-based capital um, implications here, um, but that's more along the lines of, you know, if we want a risk-sensitive capital framework, what are the risks associated with green finance? Uh, does, it, does it warrant a, um, a favorable capital um, risk weight? Does brown finance, um, how punitive should it be? Is it a risky uh, venture? Could be, given the, the way things are going. Um, how punitive should the risk weight be? Um, but again, it, we, everyone wants a, a risk-sensitive framework. Banks and regulators, um, let's, let's focus on risk. Financial inclusion, I, this is something that Basel uh, and I personally have been involved um, for 20, the 20 years that I was in Basel. Back then, we called it microfinance. Uh, financial inclusion is a, is a better description, a, a more encompassing term. Um, I, I think that's, the banks have done a, a, an important role there. FinTech has had a, um, has had a, a tremendous impact on, um, on financial inclusion, making finance available to, uh, uh, to all those who, uh, who need it. Um, again, I, I'm not so sure that this is, that, that regulation is the way to address financial inclusion. I think banks have seen, um, the benefits of financial inclusion on, um, on their own merits. So I, I don't think banks have really needed regulators to say, look, here's a little capital incentive, be good for you to, to expand your horizons. So um, I, I, think, I think there's a lot to be done, not necessarily from a regulatory perspective though. Bobby, may I jump in on that as well? It's a great Please. question. Go ahead. The, uh, the ESG sustainability agenda is one that's really dominated our, uh, our boardroom and our activities for the past year to 18 months. In fact, prior to this crisis, it really was the dominant issue for us for 2020, our annual membership meetings in October. Uh, the title is Financing a Sustainable Future. And, and, and there's so many different layers to how financial intermediaries play in uh, their part which is, you know, intermediating the trillions that are needed to transition to a low or zero carbon-based economy, which is the desire by mid-century, <clears throat> and the trillions of investable dollars that are sitting out there uh, where investors want to invest in, uh, for something other than just pure return, but the, you don't have to give up return. And I think we're starting to see that with a number of funds. You can do something that is both socially desirable and also uh, achieve an appropriate risk-based return as part of that but you need good data, you need uh, good analytics, you need a taxonomy because there's multiple definitions of what is green. Uh, when a bank in Sweden may issue a green product and that's different from a bank in Singapore. So we need harmonization and consistency and taxonomy and we need appropriate disclosure. 
and we at the IF are working, you know, night and day on these issues. And I think it's a transformative event for the industry and for financial intermediation. And I look forward to once we get back to normalcy, whatever that means, we can get back to talking about climate, get back to talking about sustainability. I do think it's the most consequential issue of our time. Yeah, and uh, that was a very fascinating, fascinating exchange for me because we've been uh, thinking a lot about climate risk and how to approach it and deal with it. And, and uh, it comes down to, to some extent to the point that uh, Tim, you mentioned, which is disclosure. And also, and then so the, the Bloomberg task force was seized to deal mm -hmm. with that. And also Bill, uh, just taking off from what you were saying, uh, financial institutions will be smart uh, if they actually be ahead of all of this before regulators even have a chance to think about it. And in fact, Tim is underscoring that. Because if you think about it, uh, when it comes to petroleum, especially in Western Canada, US elsewhere, it's really the cost of capital that's going up, right? So there's a lot of issues that they can actually do on their own. And, uh, and then, then we can have a different discussion about what is the role of regulation and what is the gaps here and what are the government policies that regulation is trying to address. So again, uh, I agree with uh, both of you. This is a very well put uh, comment and uh, it's good to know that someone's already thinking ahead to the post COVID time, right? So uh, I wanna come to you, Tim. Uh, it's an interesting question here. I'm just wondering what's your general thought on this? Uh, do you see an increasing need to four or two research and implementation of artificial intelligence owing to the fallout of this virus. Uh, indeed, and, and Bill had mentioned the role of technology. Uh, and, and it's interesting, uh, I've been in this job about eight years and how technology has become such a central part of our industry. In fact, uh, many uh, firms now refer to themselves as technology firms. I think they like the, the, the stock uh, valuations as a technology firm rather than a bank. But if you look at the amount of money that, that banks are spending, JP Morgan, $12 billion a year, Bank of America, $16 billion, Morgan Stanley, I think it's about 6 or $7 billion. There is a technology arms race that's going on. And it's, it's looking at the front end, which is how do we deliver uh, seamless services to consumers that they're used to from other kinds of institutions. It's about how do you run your business better? How do you do better risk analysis, better risk management? And then how do you take cost out of the system as well? Artificial intelligence and machine learning is a central part of that. And the challenge is that from supervisor perspective, it's a bit of a black box technology, right? It's tough to validate, it's tough to back test. And so uh, part of our job over the past two years is trying to help uh, supervisors, regulators become comfortable with not only that technology, but alongside uh, moving to cloud-based computing, which uh, gives you scale and gives you durability and also uh, with respect to things like pandemics, I think also operational resiliency. So artificial intelligence is here. It's a part of not only banking, but is central to some of the epidemiological modeling that's going on that we're seeing either from Washington State or from Oxford or others as we're trying to better understand the trends and tracks of this terrible crisis. It is a part of every industry. It'll be a part of our life going forward whether it's the, the integral to the, uh, the internet of things, it's how we do analysis and insurance companies in terms of evaluating risks of climate or in terms of uh, things as uh, mundane as auto accidents. So it is, it is part of what we do. It's gonna get more sophisticated over time. We have to think about uh, data bias. We have to think about ethics and data. There's a whole host of ethical issues uh, uh, regarding data sets 
but it requires a very close cooperation between the industry and supervisors at getting both sides comfortable with what is a truly remarkable and fast evolving technology. Thank you very much. And, uh, go ahead. Let me, let me, just, a, just a quick point um, on uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. This is, I mean, Tim, Tim put it very, very well. This is a, for banks, the investment needed in technology is massive. Um, and this is, you know, this is part of the, uh, the evolution, the FinTech evolution, the technology um, evolution, which we find ourselves. My only concern is, you know, it's been several years since we published uh, BCBS 239, Risk Data Aggregation Risk Reporting. There still is a, a, a substantial gap. There's been, there's been good progress um, in meeting those guidelines, but there's still a tremendous amount um, that needs to be done. And you've got some big, very large banks around the world. They're still, still um, grappling with, uh, with legacy issues. And so there's, they're still trying to get some of the basics right, risk data aggregation, risk reporting. Uh, and at the same time, they're trying to move ahead. They're trying to evolve. Uh, and they're trying to um, you know, maintain uh, their, their level of competition. So it's, it, it's a, a considerable challenge for banks uh, these days to, to have to invest on the one hand, but also to be able to perform the basic IT functions uh, of, of firms the size of, of some of the big ones around the world. Now, may I just follow up that? You're absolutely right, Bill. Yep. You know, there are institutions out there, uh, household brand name banks that have as many as 40 different legacy systems that have been bol bolted on over the years. And in some places, they're actually still running COBOL processing language. And so the, the programmers are actually 70 years old. They can't let them retire. But the, the amount of capital expenditures that institutions have to put in place in order to have uh, cutting edge technology is really off the charts. And it's not competing with just other banks. You're competing with internet platform companies. You're competing with Google or Facebook that have a very different business structure, very different capital structure, and, a very, and going back to valuations can raise capital incredibly easily. Uh, and in some places like Europe where there's open banking, have the capacity to scrape banking data and enrich it and use it, whereas banks don't have the same capacity. There's an asymmetric relationship. <clears throat> so. In many ways, the technology piece of this is very important, not just about banks, but who are banks competing with that are, that are financial intermediaries but have a different rule book that's not quite as, uh, as uh, constrained as, as banks have. Excellent answers. And this also underscores, uh, I guess it's relevant for another question that we had received, uh, which I'm gonna take as a friendly question because I think you pretty much covered it in the course of this one, which is what level of importance would you place on information technology during this time. Obviously, one importance is we can all operate and work in the, during the COVID time, but also information and AI go hand in hand for now and in the future as well. Uh, one big apology to our viewers. I One of the most difficult parts of my job is to uh, really decide which questions to read and not to read. Your questions are great. We just don't have time to go through all of them. But I want to assure you, if we don't read your questions, doesn't mean that your questions will be wasted because we have plans of what to do with this series and we will work on addressing those questions or use them as a source of inspiration for a product that we're trying to develop by way of advice to supervisors, regulators and the financial system. Um, this is one question that I'll actually pose to both of you. And after this question, um, try to bring a little bit wrap up the session. 
Uh, it's a forward-looking question. Um, in your view, can central bank support packages be enough to handle the huge liquidity shock that is expected to hit banks after prolonged lockdown? So once the lockdown, uh, uh, the lockdown in quotation marks is a catch-all, I think, for going back to normal when it's uh, lifted, uh, are we ready? I mean, is, are we going to see a liquidity shock and uh, as a central bank supports enough to get us through that? Uh, let's start with you, Tim, and then Bill. Sure. Well, that's, uh, that's a problem I hope that we experience soon. I'd like to get, uh, feel what recovery looks like. Uh, look, I, I think what we've seen from the Fed and others, the ECB, is uh, whatever it takes, uh, unlimited capacity, I think the Fed has already added uh, close to a trillion to its balance sheet, which is now in excess of five trillion. Maybe that doubles over the next uh, 24 months. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I think they're willing to provide liquidity, whatever it takes. And given that uh, inflation is quiescent or non-existent, interest rates are incredibly low. Uh, if you believe Larry Summers, that we're, we've, we were suffering from a, a structural uh, a stagnation prior to this crisis then uh, I, I see very little downside risk to letting the printing presses fly. It may be QE that has become MMT, which was uh, a fashionable topic six months ago or a year ago, and maybe it comes back. But I think we will see central banks provide whatever it takes to get the, the economy back up and running. And I look forward to that happening sooner rather than later. Bill, do you have anything uh, to add? Yeah, yeah no, Tim. <laughs> Tim used the expression, uh, whatever it takes, and that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, the, the immortal words of Mario Draghi, form, my former yeah. boss, the, the head of the, uh, the chairman of the uh, Basel Committee's governors and heads of supervision. Um, we've heard quite a bit of um, that phrase these last couple of weeks. And I, I completely agree with Tim. Um, I think central banks have demonstrated not only have they said, but they've demonstrated that they will do whatever it takes. And I, you know, Will it work? Well, we can't think otherwise. Uh, I, I, I'm confident it will. I, I'm really impressed by um, how quickly uh, central banks have acted so far. I think compared to last, you know, 12 years ago, I, I, I think um, they've gotten out uh, much quicker out of the out of the chute than the, than they did last time. Um, so uh, no, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I you know, I, I think there's no other way to think of it that. Yeah, it, it's going to work. Central banks will do whatever it takes. Okay, thank you again. Uh, lots of great questions. I have to say, uh, the two of you uh, really did kick ass. This was a very good session, good conversation. I'd like to have you back. Uh, maybe we create a Toronto Center channel and uh, have a discussion and do it more like a fireside chat uh, at some point. Uh, actually, all the speakers in this series have been really, really good. Uh, so just want to uh, uh, thank our uh, global audience for tuning in. Uh, tune in for other programs that we are going to develop in this series. And after our pandemics and financial stability series is uh, coming to a close, we are going to launch pandemics and financial inclusion. So stay in tune for that as well, because there's two sides of that equation. Also, um, for information on support for business continuity plans or crisis preparedness, as you know, we have launched our Center of Excellence for uh, Crisis Preparedness, having done 120 simulations since 2008 in various jurisdictions. Please contact crisis at torontocenter.org. Again, center is the English-Canadian spelling. Sorry, I have to mention that. 
uh, crisis at torontocenter.org. And a huge thank you to our speakers and thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you.